Hello, I'm Matthew Bishop, the host of the Circular Infrastructure podcast series with Voban IP. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about cities and particularly how can infrastructure operators support the transition towards more sustainable and resilient cities through the adoption of circular economy principles. To lead our conversation, we have some great expert speakers. We have Catherine DeWolf, Assistant Professor of Circular Engineering for Architecture at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. Olivier Bruce, CEO of ID Verdi. Jerome Stubler, CEO of Equance. And Sebastian Frace, Chairman of Indigo. Cities are incredibly important if we are to achieve uh, sustainability and to tackle the climate crisis. Currently, over half of the population of the world lives in cities, which already account for 70% of global carbon carbon dioxide emissions and use about almost two thirds of global energy. But by 2050, it's forecast that 80% of the population of the world will live in cities. So the question is, will cities be a driving force of the kind of circular economy principles that can allow us to make cities sustainable and make the planet sustainable in so doing. I'm going to ask Catherine DeWolf to kick us off. Um, Catherine, what for you defines the concept of a circular city? What are the main characteristics of an ideal city from a circular point of view? And what do you see as the biggest challenges that we face in moving from today's far from circular cities uh, to the kind of ideal that you have in mind? So a circular city is a, an urban model that incorporates the principles of a circular economy, uh, and it does so to create a sustainable and regenerative environment. So that means that it will res- re- minimize resource consumption, waste generation, and environmental impact. And in terms of main characteristics of a circular city, um, I would talk about narrowing the loop, which means improving efficiencies in, in, in production and design processes, of buildings and infrastructure, um, striving to use fewer resources, but also slowing the loop. So that's promoting really the concept of, of using and, and, and consuming less through extending the lifespan of buildings and infrastructure and avo- avoiding unnecessary consumption. Uh, I would also talk about closing the loop. So this is fostering reusing the materials uh, and resources, uh, but also regenerating the loop. So the city aims to leave the environment and society in a better state than, than it was before. And this can be achieved through various means, uh, such as improving di- biodiversity, uh, enhancing ecosystems, implementing measures that contribute to overall environmental and societal well-being. So we should then prioritize resource efficiency, uh, implementation of comprehensive waste management systems, uh, adoption of renewable energy sources, encouragement of urban agriculture, prioritizing uh, uh, sustainable mobility, um, collaboration and innovation, striving for social inclusion and stakeholder engagement, uh, co-create between citizens, businesses and, and, and other stakeholders, integrating nature into the urban environment, and, and finally using um, data and technology to optimize resource management to, towards um, smart infrastructure and data-driven systems, which are things that we work on in my lab. So I would say the ultimate goal is to transition towards a sustainable and regenerative urban future while considering social, economic and environmental aspects. 
And as you look at the cities of, of today, I mean, what, where do you see encouraging examples of progress towards circularity? Um, and what do you think are the biggest challenges that cities face as, as they are going to try and do that if they do? We see some encouraging examples like the city of Amsterdam has this Amsterdam circular program, which aims to transition to a circular economy by 2050. And that includes um, projects uh, focused on, on circular buildings, uh, waste to energy systems, circular procurement practices, and so on. Copenhagen in Denmark uh, is also uh, setting ambitious goals to become carbon neutral by 2025 and circular by 2030. So we see a lot of uh, waste management, energy and mobility advances in this city. Uh, another um, uh, city that we've uh, analyzed was uh, Ljubljana in Slovenia, uh, which is also making significant progress in, in waste reduction and management, achieving high um, recycling rates. So, so these are a few examples that are encouraging when you, when you think about it, that they really implement things on a city level. Uh, using programs and targets to, to advance towards more circular infrastructure, more circular buildings, district level circular energy systems, sustainable transportation networks. Um, so, so, so many other cities worldwide that are also adopting circular practices uh, and implementing uh, innovative projects. Olivier, Bruce, what do you see as a are the key characteristics of a circular city and, and where do you see the most pressing challenges or greatest immediate opportunities uh, for moving towards circularity? First thing I'd like to remind ourselves that cities are under threat and they are under threat as we speak from climate change. They suffer in the city from extreme, in the summer, sorry, from extreme heat, heat islands, they suffer from water stress, but they also suffer from more intense rainfalls, i.e. floodings. Uh, everybody, unfortunately, will remember that uh, months ago there were massive flooding and rainfalls in Italy, northern Italy, you know, 36 hours uh, worth of rainfall, 6 billion euros worth of damages. And there are many examples in the US, Houston, New York, etc., with billions of damages. So... Today, the status quo in cities is no longer possible. Now, Heidi Verde is obviously a specialist in green spaces services. And I'd like to explain how urban green spaces can be part of the solution to making cities more resilient, but also be part of this circular economy. The first thing there is a we need to change the way we look at green spaces in cities. So far, until recently, they were be, they were seen and appreciated for largely for their aesthetics and the well-being they used to provide. We need to see them now as an active tool to adapt cities to climate change, make them more resilient, and as a piece of green infrastructure. Every garden in a city will become a rain garden, i.e. will contribute to control flooding or rainfall when it happens. Every tree has an important role in capturing carbon, in protecting biodiversity, in absorbing some of the rainwater and sweating it back in the summer. So basically, green spaces in cities, they have to contribute, they have to be part of, they have to be activated, sorry, in order to contribute to protecting cities and making them more resilient 
in the adaptation to climate change. Now, why this is consistent with a circular economy? Well, as I said, if they are activated, green spaces can contribute first to save water. And the world starts to realize how water consumption and water availability is critical even within cities. Green spaces should no longer use uh, fresh water, uh, drinkable water to be maintained. They should capture their own water from rainfall and use it for their own maintenance. Or they should use grey water or reuse water for their own maintenance. So first, they should contribute to reducing water consumption in cities. The second point is if green spaces are activated and cities are transformed into what we call sponge cities, i.e. we use them to absorb rainfall, therefore it will contribute to protecting assets. One of the main challenges today that cities face is to expand and renew their sewer networks, which have not been designed 100 years ago on average. They've never been designed to absorb the water from intense rainfalls as we experience it currently. So if we use overground green spaces, every bit of them, be it a tree, a garden, or a pavement that is permeable and not built with concrete, if we use them to absorb rainwater, then they will protect the sewers, they will protect the assets from flooding, from you know the runoff water, from pollution, and therefore they will make the economy more circular because they will save from investing. Another example I'd like to mention is the famous rooftop gardens of the past. In the past, you know, it was very nice to build, you know, these spectacular rooftop gardens, but unfortunately they had very little benefit to the circular economy apart from the aesthetics and well-being. Today we're promoting green rooftops. Not necessarily trees and nice gardens, etc but a green cover made of topsoil and grass on top of buildings so that they can reduce the heat in the summer. And in doing that, they will reduce the energy consumption. And the second point, they will also contribute to capturing rainwater before it goes into the sewers. So by activating green assets in the cities, we can protect, as Catherine said, we can slow down the circularity, we can reduce the consumption of uh, resources by protecting existing assets, reducing energy consumption, and reducing water consumption. That's why I believe that, one, green assets as they should be seen, and not only as a passive element of the city. They can make the city more resilient, but at the same time, they can definitely contribute to reducing the consumption of resources within the city. So, uh, Jerome Stubler, the, uh, historically, I guess, the growth of cities and particularly uh, the growth of infrastructure on the old linear model has you know, been anything but the development of green assets. I wonder what you see as the opportunity now, particularly in terms of building circular infrastructure is you know in cities and 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 do you feel there's a 
a sea change of thinking going on in city leadership now to embrace a more circular approach? I believe we can look at the circularity of the cities, which is a, a critical topic for uh, the reason you just raised, huh, the, the quantity of emissions, the percentage of emissions which is coming from the cities, and the fact that up to a few years, we have been solely seeing concentration in cities of, of the population for uh, many uh, social reasons. And I would uh, divide the issue of the security in three elements. First of all, the usage of the city. Uh, I believe that uh, there is a progressive shift in the usage of the city, which is the fact that the city is uh, a location in which people are willing to live. Uh, the new generation are traveling less and is, are willing to live into the city. And so we need to invent a city which is more friendly and bringing a location for leisure, location for work, location for homes, which are integrated within the city in a way which is more sustainable than what we have been seeing uh, for some of us, that the fact that we were willing to, to live into the city and go away for the, from the city every weekend because we were considering that it was uh, just uh, a bed and, and a work. And for that, the first level of security is to transform the city so that office space could become residential, that there could be mixed usage of the city. And there are many uh, examples which are starting, mainly in, in north of uh, Europe, but it's starting to be populated uh, elsewhere in Europe. And I'm sure it's going also to be populated progressive, and it, it is on the west coast of the, of the US, where you see transformation of the city by the usage. What is important in that is that the first level of circularity is to reuse the building, to reuse the structure. I'll give you a number which will maybe a surprise. We, we try to monitor the quantity of goods which are entering Paris Peripheric a day. It is in the range of 20,000 tons a day, which is entering the peripheric. So you divide that uh, by the 3 million inhabitants of, uh, of the city and you find a number of kilos which are the food, the, but also the construction piece uh, that uh, we are using. So the first element to make it circular is to reuse the building. And to reuse the building, meaning that you need to build building or change the building in order then to be modular in their usage. And second, to use the city and work in rebuilding the city on itself from below and from above meaning that we need to build the city using what is existing and create uh, from below the connection, the space, the new location which are required in terms of new development in order to, to create the city from below, in order not to, record, to, to do what we have been doing too much in the past, which is to destroy and to reconstruct. The second element is on the construction itself. And we can see so major change right now on the circularity of material which are used in order to, to, to build the city. First of all, of course, there is a quite high level of security on the raw material, reuse of steel. All of the steel in construction is coming, most of the steel is coming in Europe from, uh, from the circular economy. Copper, not yet. Uh, plastic, uh, not at all. So uh, increase the reuse of the material. We have been uh, working on projects 
right now in which we need to recover 20-30% of the components on top of the raw material. That's the second step. Right now, we, we are doing a project called Six Degrees, and this project Six Degrees, in fact, is the fact that we are reusing all material to renovate and build new uh, office space. Yes, we are recycling co- toilets. You know? uh, we are recycling carpets. We are recycling... Uh, 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 HVAC system in order to reuse those system which are uh, clean, reset, but there is still a lot to be done on that. Electrical equipment are not recycled yet, and that's something we want to work on it. And the last element that uh, after usage construction is the energy reusage. Let's consider the city as a thermal plate. Thanks to what uh, Olivier is going to, to provide, you know, it's going to reduce in summer with plant, with green roof. If you make a computation and you take a, a city uh, in, in, in summer, you can reduce by two degrees more or less uh, the temperature of the city during the summer. However, if you are in an area where you are quite balanced between the energy which is required uh, between summer and winter, we're going to use, we are still using a huge quantity of energy to provide cooling and to provide heating while, in fact, by storing the extra energy during the summer into the soil, we have enough energy uh, to cover the winter. I give you an example, uh, which is simple. In Brussels, for the BNP, ask us to do a new, a new head office for the BNP in Brussels. And uh, it was starting from an old building which has six levels of car park. Just by transforming the level number minus six of the car park by two big tanks, the big tanks of hot water and the big tanks of cool water, there is no more need of heating and cooling. And we divide by 20 the quantity of energy which is required to cool and heat the building. Okay, and then we just pump water into a system with very little heat pump, divided by 20. So meaning that the usage of the underground, the usage of the storage into uh, the ground is a fantastic opportunity of recycling the energy which is coming from the heating and the cooling of that plate, which is the city. So Sebastian Freyce, similar question to you. You know, obviously we're talking about the need for a dramatic transformation of the infrastructure in cities in order that it be circular infrastructure. You know, what do you see that infrastructure operators can do to lead this transformation? Or are you inevitably going to be following wherever the city leadership goes? I mean, in practice, how how do you find that you can push this agenda forward? Yeah. In fact, I perfectly agree with the, the other speakers. I, I think that the, the challenge, the big challenge we have to face today is to, it's kind of uh, finding a new deal for the, the way we, we want to share spaces in the city because, of course, people uh, uh, in huge city, you, you have so many people and they, they, they are now expecting another, uh, I would say, way of life. We, we saw that. Uh, uh, notably uh, after the, the, the crisis, uh, the COVID crisis. And, and of course, concerning our, our industry, we, we, we had launched a few years ago some uh, reflection on this, uh, on this topic, meaning that uh, 
we are an operator uh, in the core of the cities, and uh, we we manage uh, infrastructure. Most of them were designed and built many many years ago. So. Uh, are they all useful or when it's not the case, for uh, what kind of new function we could imagine they could be uh, recycled? And for example, just a, a figure very impressive in Paris, the surface of uh, underground car parks represent the equivalent of 14 uh, Montparnasse Tower. Uh, it means that uh, under our feet in Paris, you have so many underground surfaces and of course, you can imagine that uh, for for some of them and a lot of them, of course, they, these surfaces are not full uh, all the time, and and for for some of them, you can say never. So, um, of course, it means that as we will have to, uh, as Olivier said, uh, uh, to transform the surface because we will need more spaces for other functions than car park, for example, concerning our activity. Of course, there is a kind of more and more strong constraint on the on the on street parking. It means that we will have to do the same kind of reflection on the ground, and uh, that's why for for some years, yes, we we for Indigo Group, we we, we try to imagine what kind of other activities we could uh, implement in our in our car parks, um, knowing that uh, our responsibility, I would say, our our duty is to find solutions for cities to enable them to, uh, I would say, rebuild on themselves and by themselves. So it means that uh, probably we will have so, so many projects to deploy. And we, we made some uh, experience very, very interesting in terms of, uh, of success because we are, for example, sure that we can implement underground solutions like uh, last mile logistic platforms or these kind of things. And, it is a function we absolutely need in our cities nowadays, and we know that we will not find any solution on surface uh, for many reasons. Um, that's why I'm sure that recycling approach, uh, circular approach, will be key in the way the city will uh, will evolve. And I'm perfectly sure that infrastructure in this core of cities, we don't need more infrastructure, in fact, most of the time. We just need to modify what exists, what is existing, and we just need to have some ideas about the way we could uh, implement in this existing infrastructure new type of activities in order to, to, to support the, the way the cities must evolve in the following years. Catherine Dorf, this notion that we don't need more infrastructure, we just need to repurpose it in a way that's circular, you run the Circular Engineering for Architecture Lab. What does the lab do to sort of help think through the design issues around construction in cities in order that they can be circular? And and are you very much of that mindset that we don't want a lot of new construction? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the other speakers on, uh, on the fact that we need to also rethink uh, how we see our buildings. And so we, we also need a focus on, on renovation and retrofitting rather than constructing new buildings. We need to extend the lifespan of existing buildings. So I always say 
the more sustainable building is no building, right? Uh, so if we can do it, what we already have and re-adapting it, uh, of course, if we do adapt it, if we do construct something, then we, we try to increase the use of sustainable materials. So uh, reused materials, uh, upcycled materials, bio-based and renewable materials. Uh, we try to design for disassembly and reuse so that we can design buildings with circularity in mind, uh, allowing for easy disassembly and reuse of components or adaptive reuse of the building itself. Uh, we try to foster a transition to a more digital and industrialized construction that can help with uh, circularity using BIM, prefabrication, off-site uh, uh, digital fabrication methods to enhance this uh, uh, reduction of waste and improve resource management. We, we also think about collaborative and integrated approaches where um, we really try to involve various stakeholders. So we develop also uh, machine learning algorithms that help us exchange data and exchange information across the different stakeholders. So create really matchmaking algorithms between uh, uh, stakeholders of the built environment, between architects, engineers, contractors, suppliers, um, clients, users, governments and so on to share knowledge implement these circular strategies and have a more holistic and integrated approach to uh, regeneration in in the city uh, and also we we think circular business models as well um, um, for example a product as a service models where you you, you don't um, uh, buy a product, you don't buy the, the material itself, but the surface, the, for example, the number of lux instead of a lamp, right? This is, you, you want light, you don't want a lamp, right? Um, uh, we also think about regulations uh, and, and, and how they can support and incentivize this transition to a circular uh, economy and also the community engagement and awareness. So what we do in the CA lab, in the Circular Engineering for Architecture lab, is that we try to look at digital technologies that exist in a lot in other sectors. They're, they're emerging in, a, in, in sectors outside of the construction sector, and we bring them to the construction sector to, to foster this transition from a linear to a circular economy. So, for example, when we talk about community engagement and awareness, uh, we want to involve citizens in the decision-making process um, of the city. And to do so, we use, for example, extended reality and strategy gaming uh, so that we can have a, a discussion about the impacts of our actions, of uh, the, 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 the actions that we want to take for more sustainability and more regeneration. So we specifically promote the use uh, of, of reused materials, of regenerative materials uh, through those digital technologies. For example, we use also computer vision to recognize the materials that are actually in the building stock. We use, for example, machine learning algorithms and computer vision algorithms on Google Street View images so that we have an idea of the material stock in a city and uh, can make predictions of patterns of reuse, which buildings are being renovated, which buildings are being demolished, which materials are in these buildings that are being demolished. Can we reuse them instead of throwing them away? And so uh, a lot of digital technologies can help us do that. The building information modeling, data analytics, computational design algorithms, um, blockchain technology, scanning, tracking and tracing. So all of these technologies really help us uh, facilitate collaboration among stakeholders uh, across the whole value chain towards more uh, regeneration and circularity in, in cities. And that's really what we're um, promoting at the CA Lab. So as, as Catherine was saying, Olivier, that this is a multi-stakeholder challenge to make this transition to 
circular cities to circular infrastructure. And I wonder particularly what you as business leaders are looking for from the political side and from the policy makers in terms of helping to make this transition happen. Yes. Um, the first thing is, I think Catherine said something essential in my view, is that if we are to adapt cities, we can only do it, and we heard it from my colleagues, the other speakers, we can only do it by working together. We can't do it in isolation. You know, if, if a building is being renovated or built, we need to consider it not only as a building, but also, as I said, you know, in the modest contribution of nature, uh, we need to design the rooftop so that it can contribute to capturing, reducing the heat, etc. If uh, a car park is being built, please, let's make sure that there will be enough space in between the car park and the street so that we can plant trees with enough. You know, one of the problems of modern cities is that you see trees on the surface in the street, but they suffer from below because they don't have enough space for the topsoil that will feed them and the roots. So we need to cooperate. And I think public authorities have a role to play to say when they grant a construction permit or you know uh, they start to plan the, the, uh, the refurbishment of part of the city, they need to make sure that all the stakeholders and all the solutions are brought in together so that they can maximize, one, the circularity of the solution, and two, uh, the benefit of it. And the last point I'd like to say to, to what has been said, I fully concur about the fact that cities have enough infrastructure. The question now is not to build more, is to use it better. When it comes to green spaces, you know, every tree, every park, has to be seen as part of a green infrastructure and no longer only as a passive element of aesthetics. And therefore, you know, the next infrastructure to be activated, not to be built in cities, is this green infrastructure that can contribute to what all the other speakers have said in terms of reducing heat and therefore energy consumption, you know, capturing water, uh, and therefore protecting assets and making the city more resilient and livable. Sebastian, I want to stick with this issue of city leadership. I mean, what are you seeing that the best city leaders and policymakers are doing um, that are most helpful to driving this transition forward? Yeah, the, the, the question is, I think, the, the central one as I, I the good news in, in, in actually in, the, in this situation is that I think that private operators or private actors are ready to act and have so many ideas and perhaps solutions and want to test and experiment so many things. The problem we have very often is that, of course, we operate in a, in a specific frame concerning our activity, of course, public contract uh, most of the time. And so it's not the, the ideal frame to propose some uh, innovations and some innovative approach in terms of activities. You can imagine, for example, concerning Indigo, that uh, when I have to, to make proposal for, for, for a, a car park, for a city, for the following 20, 30, 40 years sometimes, I obviously need to be able to say, okay, I, I know what will be the five first years, but I'm probably, after five to 10 years, it will be something else. And, 
And so give me the capacity and the capability to, to change the model at the moment and to implement in my, in my car park, in your car park, implement new solutions. And it's not so simple nowadays. So my wish will be for the decision makers will be be more agile, more open. And as Olivier said, we need to invent and to find new way of cooperation, in fact, and, and, and uh, notably between public and, and private uh, uh, actors. We need to find a new model of cooperation um, because it's not always uh, so simple to implement and to experiment so, so, so the, the kind of ideas we, we, we can have. And so, for example, yes, when you want to um, to implement in a car park, uh, existing car park with uh, public contracts you operate for many years and you have suddenly an idea and a partner for, for that. Meaning, uh, I want to implement uh, 1,000 square meters of uh, last mile logistic platform. Of course, it's absolutely not written in the contract. <laughs> it's normal because 10 or 20 years ago, it was not uh, uh, neither useful nor... Uh, necessary or good idea. So we, we need to have public actors able to be agile as the situation needs. And it's not only simple and they are not individually responsible. We, we need a, a kind of new frame of discussions and a new new model of cooperation. It will be my, my, my first wish concerning this point. If I may add, sorry, to what you just said, Sebastian, uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, the you know, cities face, they face massive challenges. We all describe them. For me, the solution is in the public-private partnership. You know, the challenges are so massive and urgent that now is the time to bring around the same table the public sector that will de define and regulate and the system and the private sector that will innovate, that will take risks, and eventually that will deliver in the framework designed by the public sector. When Paris was entirely redesigned by Ostman in the middle of the 19th century, you know, with an objective of uh, security, but also improve the, 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 the health of the inhabitants and obviously deal with the water, etc., fight the epidemics, etc., it was designed and rebuilt via cooperation between public sector and private sector that was delegated the responsibility to build and operate. And we, even to this day, we enjoy the benefits of what was done in uh, 1850. So I think that today, considering the challenges, but also the solutions that are available, we're not short of solutions. It's time to reinvent the public-private partnership so that we can bring the public sector to design the framework, provide the, co the, the coordination, and the private sector that will bring innovation, risks, and take its responsibilities. Time is against us. This could be the solution, as we've seen in the history of our countries in the past. And Jerome, just to build a bit on that, I mean, to what, what role do you see for public procurement policies uh, in this area to, to drive circular infrastructure in cities? Uh, I think uh, what Olivier has been saying is essential. Uh, it's not just a problem of uh, public procurement policy. It's a lot wider than that. Of course, it's a problem of public uh, uh, procurement policy because today we are answering to tenders in which price is mainly the most important criteria. 
and they are starting to move to something else, which is a total cost. But that's not the issue. We need to move to the total CO2 cost, you know, meaning that people need to understand the fact that we have been changing world. We are in, in, in a world in which we have a limited number of resources and that we, are, we have to reduce significantly the quantity of resources. So I like the example of Olivier because if you look back to the history of cities, and I'm risking myself in front of a professor, okay, uh, the first revolution was to make the cities which are going to grow correct in terms of sanitary, correct in terms of making sure that the fireman could be escaping and, and entering the city and, and, uh, and avoiding the big fire which has been touching all the main cities uh, in the 19th century. The second revolution has been the revolution of transportation. Uh, if you look to the situation which occurred before the invention of metro, it was a disaster in most of the city. And we need to invent the third revolution, so it should be a rupture. And the third revolution is to make sure that we are uh, making the city as a city in which we want to live, which is sustainable. And when Copenhagen do that, that's fine. But to make sure that it is done in many cities, we need to invent the world, need to agree on a, on a mechanism to transform the city, which is in rupture with what we have been doing. And then the public policy uh, would, uh, would follow. It's not possible anymore to spend 70% of the energy to heat, to cool uh, the city. So we, we can easily reuse I gave an example, it's not uh, an example for Indigo uh, in what we've been doing in Brussels, you know, but just removing 15% of the car space, which are not used anymore, we, we resolve not the problem of the building, we resolve the problem of the, all the sector around the bank. Okay? So the solutions are quite easy in terms of energy. So we need to reinvent the city as an energy hub to store energy, as I said, for the winter, and, and, and to cool uh, uh, during the summer, but also to use the sun which is coming on the city in order to power all the electrical devices which are uh, required. And so uh, we need to look at the city as a plate of energy. And I'm using that word because that's something which is not used yet. And if we do that, we would first change totally the impact of, uh, of the city in terms of uh, its energy and carbon uh, footprint. And, and for that, of course, there is a major requirement in terms of uh, public policy because, and I give the example of what is happening in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, you negotiate the volume of earth below the city and you say, I'm going to, to rent this bubble of coolness and I'm going to rent this bubble of heating. And, and so this has been uh, changed simply by a fundamental decision that I am the first promoter in France. Uh, it is to more to not use any more uh, gas fire in a building. They said it's forbidden anymore to use gas fire to heat a building, a new building, not for the old building, of course. And a fundamental decision like that, which is quite simple to be to be taken, you know, is delivering a huge change in terms of uh, circular use of uh, of, uh, of the energy. So. Yes, it's very important that we are inventing and it exists in the world, uh, this rupture in the way we're going to use uh, energy in the city and the usage of the city. 
Um, we're hearing a lot about new business models, infrastructure as a service, and there's obviously been the growth of the sharing economy. Um, I wonder if each of you could talk about the most um, exciting examples or where you see potential for these new business models to drive the circular city forward. Olivia, I wanted to ask you firstly, how do you use these new models at ID Verde? So we're trying to promote a new model. Nature provides, as we know, so many environmental benefits. We mentioned some of them that it deserves proper funding. The problem with nature today in the world is that everybody wants and needs more nature, but nobody unfortunately pays for it. So for me, it's a little bit like the waste industry 30 years ago. In cities 30 years ago, waste was waste. It had to be collected and driven to a landfill. That was it. It was only a cost. Until the industry started to realize that there were different types of waste. Some of it could be sorted, recycled, burned to produce energy, etc. And today, the same waste generates uh, revenues, which feeds the system. Green spaces in cities are exactly the same. Today, they are just a passive asset without dedicated funding, whereas they become essential. We need to sort out the kind of aesthetics element of it, and it's fine if you know some suburbs or people can afford it, why not? But this is different from the active part of nature, which will contribute to everything we described before that. And then the green spaces as an element of infrastructure needs to be funded as a solution and not only as an element of well-being. How can we fund it? Well, let me give you one example. Currently working, uh, Catherine mentioned the city of Copenhagen. It, it's among the first cities that put in place a comprehensive plan to protect the assets from uh, intense rainfall and uh, flooding. It's called cloudburst, as when the cloudburst happens and floods the city. So now they are using, for the first time, they are redesigning all the green spaces in rain gardens in order to protect the existing sewers and avoid digging out the streets and replacing and expanding the sewers. Which means that if we look at green spaces as a solution to protect a neighborhood or, you know, uh, a street or whatever, then we can allocate some resources to it in order to derive some benefits. The other example, briefly, uh, uh, Jerome mentioned, obviously, the building, uh, the, the, the cost of energy to heat or cool down buildings. Well, if uh, one builds a rooftop garden with no other role than aesthetics, there would be no funding for it. But if we design green rooftops with a layer of soil and grass that will contribute to reducing the temperature in the summer or protecting the building somehow in the winter, then we can fund the green rooftop via some of the energy savings that it will uh, it will generate. So first, nature needs to be properly funded. We can't ignore the needs of nature and the funding for it. And today, the drama, unfortunately, is that there is no dedicated funding for active nature. What we're trying to promote is that when we start to measure the benefits of active nature, then we can 
link them to the, the value of the benefits they offer, and then we can fund it. And the beauty of this system is that if we can raise funding to activate nature, then we can invest more. So cities will be greener, and the green spaces will have a, a much greater benefit. So, and listen, this is not science fiction because this is exactly what happened to the waste industry. Nobody in modern cities today would consider putting all the waste in the same uh, bin and uh, see it uh, driven to a landfill. Okay, well, green spaces need to be seen like that. There are some assets and benefits, and they need to be linked to the savings they generate and funded accordingly. This is what we're promoting. Uh, and to what, what you're saying, uh, you can generate, of course, some saving in terms of energy, but you can also generate some saving in terms of transportation. Because if you create an environment in which people are not traveling, uh, and, yeah, and so you can generate yes. by the saving of yes. transportation, which are huge. Uh, we, we, in my past life, uh, you, you don't know Olivier, but yeah. I work on uh, a software to, to develop uh, the capacity of making the city greener. And on large city, yeah. we were able to consider that the maximum could be between 25 and 30% of the surface to be green. And uh, in fact, on top of the minus two degrees, which was expected to become yeah. in, in the cities, we were considering yeah. a, a change of 20-30% in uh, the reduction of the transportation which are required to get out of the, yeah. of the city uh, from, the, from that capacity. If I may add to, to the... the things that you were saying about how to invest in uh, more green spaces in the city. Uh, maybe an example mm -hmm. uh, that we could uh, show is the High Line in New York, where uh, a lot of green space was added in New York. And just the fact that the city invested into making that increased incredibly the uh, revenue from all of the people that were living next to it because it just became so much more worth to, to live close to the high line. So basically the rent increased there because it was worth more living there now. So so the, the benefits uh, for the ones yeah. living close to the high line went up, basically meaning that what we put into the investment which is often public money into green spaces, gives benefits to private owners, right? And so if we would somehow have these owners also invest into the green spaces of a city because each of them has benefits from it. And of course, it's it's difficult to, to arrange that um, because how do you measure how much benefit they will get out of this investment? But private owners around green spaces make a lot of money from the investments that the public does into those green spaces in the city. So there is also yeah. something about rethinking uh, the engagements of uh, citizens. And I think also it's important to think about for a circular economy to thrive, that we need citizens to be involved, informed and have a sense of ownership in these circular initiatives. And so engaging the citizens with, with circular infrastructure can be achieved through transparent communication, but also having uh, a sense of, of the impact of uh, what we will do with these spaces, right? Active yeah. participation and involving these stakeholders in the decision-making process. So, Sebastian, how, what's your take on all this? Where do you see the role for new models? Yeah, in fact, our, our model was was the, the, the reason why a few years ago we launched this reflection named Car Parks of the Future, because we, we wanted uh, to have a kind of exploration about the future for even for businesses. In fact, uh, 
exploring and reinventing urban underground spaces because of course we are very uh, very concerned by this uh, by this question and in fact the the conclusion and the uh, i would say the summary of the, of the conclusion was quite simple is to say the first level of an underground car park must be an extension of the surface uh, services and so an extension of the city in fact and that's why we want to deploy on this kind of surfaces plus my logistic platforms or for example storage or things like this in a in a very accessible uh, way uh, with the, the the district at the bottom of course um, we, you less accessible you have very specific characteristic and, and Jerome mentioned uh, in fact is that you have a, a very uh, interesting thermic inertia in this in these services so you can imagine a lot of things concerning energy because when you have so heat and cool challenges to face in our city I'm absolutely convinced that a part of the solution is underground of course because we know this this characteristic and of course we we have some uh, some level in the middle for for parking meaning uh, in the future of course different way of uh, uh, compared to, to, to today eh? it means uh, of course electrical vehicles or EV charging points in a large uh, proportion and because in this vision we are sure that uh, at beyond the the surface parking will not exist any longer because we have so many more interesting functions to to to, to create and to deploy uh, in a, in a city uh, to support the way the, the the citizens want to live in the cities because of course in the Olivier Olivier mentioned it, it is clear that uh, we talked about revolution a few minutes ago but you you, you have a between uh, Osman and, and after, uh, after Osman after Metro, you, you had, uh, I don't know if you remember in the 70s, 80s, the number of cars on the Place Vendôme in Paris or I don't know else in Invalids. So we, we had a kind of revolution concerning car park industry. Was this construction of all these underground car parks? The fact is that the number of cars have so increased since this ambition that today you have, you have a lot of cars in in cities where you, imagine, you can imagine that you can do better in terms of uh, space and surface um, using. So that's why our vision was, was this one. And we made a, a, a very useful or our reflection experiment in 20, just before the COVID crisis. We implement in one car park in the core of Paris because it was on the uh, on Ile de la Cité. So you, you can find more, more central than that in Paris. We had a partner uh, called Montmarché, which is a subsidiary of, of Grand Frey, wanted to, to, to deploy his model uh, in the core of Paris. And of course, he was looking for 1,000 square meters in the city. You can imagine it does not exist. It, just, it is not uh, just a question of price. It does not exist, in fact. So we decided to deploy his uh, refrigerated area uh, within our existing car park. And it was a pioneering achievement and a great success not only for our partner but for us to demonstrate to prove that it is possible and it was very difficult of course because this case Montmarché just besides a car park is not in the regulation rules either so our the administration had to invent with them a new way of considering this kind of uh, this kind of situation that's why we are optimistic because we have proven it is possible. But, and we, we already uh, said it, it needs a new model of cooperation with the, 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 the public administration. And it, it needs that we share the, 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 the targets is that 
CO2 reduction and uh, the way we can uh, rebuild the city on, on itself. Well, we're almost out of time, unfortunately, and I want to ask each of our experts to give me a very quick answer, an optimistic answer in the face of what is a huge challenge of transformation to the circular city with the foundation of circular infrastructure, which is, as you look ahead over the next year or two, what is one thing you would like to see every city do to accelerate this move towards circular infrastructure? I'm going to start with Olivier and uh, take it from there. Yeah, I would like cities to declare green spaces as an essential solution to making them more resilient and to make the economy, the city economy, more circular. Jerome. I'm very optimistic in the sense that I believe that the technology are there in order to make the energy for cooling and warming the cities almost free in the next 10 years. Sebastian. Yes, I would like to say to them, trust us and let us propose and deploy experimentation and let's try together to find the, the, the good uh, models for tomorrow and, and convince that uh, we can do it in a very fast uh, way if, uh, if we are aligned on this. Yeah. I'm going to give the last word to you, Catherine. What gives me hope is that there's a lot of emerging technologies and I hope that we can harvest the power of those emerging digital technologies to empower inclusive decision-making of citizens and stakeholders towards a more regenerative future for our cities. Well, thank you, everyone. It's been a really stimulating conversation, wide-ranging. I think it's given us a sense of the scale of transformation that is required to get to circular cities, but also many examples that can inspire us to believe that circular infrastructure will be one of the foundation stones of this shift towards circular cities that will be so crucial to achieving the sustainable world that we all hope to be living in in the future. I'd like to thank our expert guests, Catherine DeWolf, Assistant Professor at Circular Engineering for Architecture at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Olivier Bruce, uh, CEO of ID Verdi. Thank you. Uh, Jerome Stubler, CEO of Equans. Thank you very much. And Sebastian Freis, Chairman of Indigo. Thank you, Matthew. I'm Matthew Bishop, and this has been the Talking Circular Infrastructure Podcast with Vauban Infrastructure Partners. <laughs>